You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. If you're just now tuning in, this is the Business Hour on America's Web Radio, and we have a very, very special guest. Uh, folks that just tune in will think we're doing another medical show, but uh, this lady is is so unique and just a, a dynamite person. She is a medical doctor. She's an anesthesiologist. And she's also an attorney, so we're going to find out her story right now. Dr. Singleton, uh, Marilyn Singleton, Dr. Singleton, welcome to America's Web Radio, and it's it's good to have you back on. It's been a good while. It has. It's always so good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you're you're such a. Uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg, the MD or the JD? Oh, the MD. I, um, growing up, I didn't know whether I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer, and I decided medicine was much more interesting. So I went straight to medical school from college, and then after I practiced for 20 years, I, part of it was the Clinton health care plan and uh, having single-payer health care just really pop out on the horizon it always had been there but this was like this is the real thing i wanted to go to law school and learn how they make laws how do you fight this sort of stuff and and um so i did and learned health law insurance law and practiced that for a while while i was still practicing medicine wow I uh, and exactly when did you fit in sleep? <laughs> did you? Well, it's it's interesting because when you go to graduate school of some sort when you're older, you realize how much of so many things is common sense. I mean, unless it's hardcore science or math or something, that um, a lot of law is reasoning and just your years of experience of being alive help teach you some reasoning that as a 21-year-old kid you just don't have. Right. Well, I uh, I salute you for doing what you've done. You've all, you're also past president of Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, which uh, I'm acquainted with, and uh, a very good organization. And, uh, you know, we got a fight on our hands. Would you agree? Absolutely. And it's, what's interesting to me, this fight has always been here. In fact, when AAPS started, it was back in 1943, and it was 30-some-odd physicians who saw the first single-payer health care bill. And they said, we have to do something about it. It's going to destroy medicine. And uh, so the organization formed and grew and grew and grew. And interestingly, when things kind of calm down and, and you don't have people talking about single payer, we get complacent, which is it's human nature. You think, oh, everything's fine. And then slowly but surely, it creeps back in there's and there's always some crisis and this is the scary thing about this COVID thing that 
it's being used in so many ways that have nothing to do with us having a viral pandemic. We've had viral pandemics before, but this time, given the election year that it occurred in and and all the various things swirling about and social issues swirling about, it's like, aha, this could be the thing that drives us closer to single payer. You know, the shame of it all, and we have many programs that uh, are the same way that the public, even though we've got the best of equipment, uh, any kind of knowledge is at your fingertips, basically, and uh, it's people are just too lazy to learn and too lazy to find out the facts. And it's very frustrating to listen to you, listen to some of our other medical shows, the Doctors' Lounge and so forth. And what we're facing should be scaring the pants off of everybody, but uh, most people look at it like, what's in it for me? That's right. But I guess this is just human nature. As long as things are kind of going okay for you, and you keep your head in the sand and don't realize the long-term consequences of perhaps some of your short-term gains, then this this will just keep on happening. But it, it it's it's just interesting that I it's a technique. It's certainly parents do it to kids. You throw them a bone every now and then to shut them up and try to mollify people and keep them quiet. But I think maybe the lockdowns and restrictions and stuff and COVID has it's worked two ways and you can see people kind of divided. There's those that sit back and comply and there's others that say, wait a minute, do we really need to do this? What are the consequences of this? Are are we looking beyond the tip of our nose? And what's going to happen to our kids? Uh, do we have a permanent bad economy and tell everybody get used to it, that it's the so-called new normal, which I hate that expression. Mm-hmm. It's not normal. That's like, re- <laughs> that's like rewriting history. Wait a second. History is history. You can't rewrite it. You're, you're absolutely right. And, oh, my goodness, when we see these people renaming schools, digging up things out of the past of people who did a lot to move the country forward and find out there's some transgression they had, therefore they were taking up too much oxygen when they were on this earth and they must be erased. I mean, this kind of attitude, I just look at it and say, this is an America. This this is not how we should be acting. It's like those pictures of uh, old pictures of Stalin where he erased people out of the pictures who he became um, dissatisfied with. It's like you kill them and then they don't even exist in the past. And this is what we've become. I mean, San Francisco even wanting to change the name of Diane Feinstein's school. And I don't agree with everything of her politically, but I do think she was a strong woman who made her political career on her own. And um, 
deserved to have a school named after her, but oh no, there was a Confederate flag somewhere in her past. So it completely negates everything the woman did. Gee. Uh, you know, uh, what's, the, what's the saying? Uh, California is the land of fruit and nuts. And, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Shears, it does uh, the doctor's lounge, uh, swore the other day, he said, I'll never go back to San Francisco. And, you know, what I, what maybe you can clarify this for me in that what, uh, what is the motivation of the one payer system or why, why can many of us see how terrible it would be and how wrong it would be and that there's just no good, you know, it, it's like I'm not a big hospitalist fan either. And uh, yet, if we can see it, why can't a politician see it? Well, you you have to look at it. There's two completely separate motivations, just because there's two groups of people, which is sad. It, it we're I feel like we're back to the days of feudalism, where there's the people, the haves, and then the have-nots, except bit by bit, the have-nots group in America are growing and growing and growing. Again, COVID has certainly pointed that out, of the people who had the kind of jobs that they could still get paid and work from home. Was there a single politician who didn't get paid? Huh. No. And then the people who have the kind of jobs, if you're a laborer or somebody, you, you gotta, gotta go out, you gotta build the house, you have to be a carpenter. There's so many jobs where people could not work from home. Those were the people that suffered, but the politicians were doing fine. The people who financed them were doing fine. Certainly here in California, the Silicon Valley people, they could work from anywhere. So it, really didn't matter and already half of the facebook and google people were working off-site so that wasn't that big of a change for them so we see this division of attitudes and again you mentioned about people not knowing that if you keep facts from people the way news censors things even little stories about problems with single payer in England or Canada, if people don't know that story, then they'll think it sounds fine. Wow, they're going to give me all my health care. It's going to be free. Oh, my goodness. I'll just walk into the doctor, get seen, and walk out. <laughs> if you and can it, find a doctor's office to walk into. Well, you got it. And we've been slowly groomed for that because... What was it? Last year was the last big survey that showed that now 47% of doctors are either employed or somehow associated with these large hospital groups, whereas 20 years ago, most doctors were in private practice. So people have become used to going over to the hospital and going in the big office complex in the hospital rather than a separate doctor's office. So you kind of bit by bit get used to the idea that you're 
part of some big machine. So what's the next step? That in the doctor's office, the government will be paying for everything. And people don't realize that once you have only one source of authorizations for your care, um, money for your care, you're not going to have any choice in the matter. And by the time people figure that out, it's too little too late. It's amazing. And uh, uh, Scott Barber, uh, orthopedic surgeon, uh, was in yesterday and talking about the fact that, you know, it's going to slap people up, uh, you know, what happened? What happened? And, you know, he is totally a capitalistic doctor and uh, doesn't want, you know, he, as far as I know, I don't think he would ever go to work for a hospital. But, you know, he he says that's the only way we're going to survive is if we have a capitalistic system. So where do you think, uh, changing the subject just a little bit, where, where do you think we are with COVID? Well, years ago, in the smallpox era, there was an epidemiologist named Dr. Farr, F-A-R-R, who developed the Farr curve. And it was kind of your standard bell-shaped curve. Mm-hmm. And bottom line was, what goes up must come down. And it goes up at a certain rate, comes down at a certain rate. And it looks like COVID is following that curve. We had a couple of blips, but our country's so big. Different states had their blips at different times, depending on what their rules were and all that sort of thing. And that it peaked out, and now it's starting to come down. And the interesting thing is now there's all the talk of the variants, and they may be worse, and this, that, and the other, and we'll just have to wait and see. Are these variants really that different, even though the vaccine, they say, partially works against the variants, but just like every year, the flu has a different uh, variant. Your flu vaccine from the last year doesn't work for this year. The question is, are the new variants something that make you sicker than the original coronavirus that came out last year and probably the year before, which is a whole other whole story about the COVID and why people, why it seems so different and hit so hard. I mean, some people posit that if, in fact, it was developed from this research called gain of function, where you manipulate a virus trying to make it more powerful, then our own bodies didn't have a chance to gradually adapt to it. I mean, it's a coronavirus. It's the same kind of virus that um, probably half of common colds are caused by. And obviously, it's greater than a common cold. But year by year, as you get a cold, you kind of start to get more immune. There's multiple viruses out there. They change a little bit. But you've got some memory immunity. They call it T-cell and B-cell immunity. And so your body has that memory. And um, you can keep it for a very, very long time. Um, in fact, I was listening to Dr. Monica Gandhi, who's from UCSF, and to me, she's the real voice of reason, 
who said that they tested a 90-year-old man who'd had a flu vaccine, and he still had uh, T-cell, B-cell memory for 90 years. So that was good information to know. So there's a lot of little ins and outs about this virus that do make it different, and so some things are going to remain to be seen, but so far it looks like we peaked and then we're starting to drift down. And the drifting down happened well before people were vaccinated. And we just have a small percentage of the population vaccinated, so that wouldn't have had an effect on um, the number of cases coming down. Do you think, or <clears throat> what would you say that we've learned from this pandemic and and the knowledge not only of the virus but in general of of um, people and how we've reacted oh that's a very interesting question and again it it lets us know the brilliance of our federalism and the system of the united states because various states responded in different ways And, again, that division, the states that responded by not totally locking down forever and ever and ever and ever, they did their two weeks to slow the curve and then started gradually opening back up, that those states were vilified by the states who completely locked down. Yet, in the end, all the numbers are the same. So the question is, what really worked? It didn't seem to be the lockdowns, and um, it didn't seem to be the masks. There's enough differences around the world. Uh, In fact, just yesterday I was talking to someone from Peru, and they said Peru is one of the hardest-hit places in South America, and they've been on total lockdown for a year, Mm. total The men and women take turns going outside. The men get to go outside Monday, Wednesday, Friday. The women on Tuesday, Thursday. Masking and those plastic hoods, all this stuff. Yet, they're still hard hit. So, um, I'm not an epidemiologist, so (laughs) I couldn't answer why this big difference, although the... The simplistic answer is viruses do what viruses do. And you you made a statement that we uh, talked about a little bit, using COVID fear to divide and rule. So do you think our, uh, this has totally become a politi- political issue? Oh, at this point, it has. Well, actually, I think it became a political issue last year because it was an election year. And people were getting so polarized against President Trump that they had to find everything wrong with everything he said. And, you know, everything he said wasn't perfect. Everything he said wasn't right. But the way, even when he said things that were correct, that someone was picking it apart. So that helped divide us. Because when you see that happening, when you see someone get picked apart and it's like, wait a minute, I I know that to be true. Why are they saying it's false? Oh, just because President Trump said it. And 
why is something true? Oh, just because Dr. Fauci said it. Dr. Fauci, who has a terrible history of not knowing what he's talking about, but somehow everybody's forgot about it. <laughs> the AIDS misinformation he gave, I mean, well into the AIDS epidemic. Um, just ask any AIDS activist and they will not have great words to say about Dr. Fauci. And But somehow the media was able to paint this picture that we had a savior out there and everything he said was gospel. But if somebody were to be um, diligent and actually look back and look at quotes all the way back from last March, you'd see he's changed his mind on multiple occasions, never gone back and said, well, I was wrong, it was new, I didn't know what I was talking about, and no, just sort of change your mind. Don't wear a mask, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, wear three masks, and um, remdesivir is the standard of care, and the World Health Organization says, no, it's not, it doesn't really work, but he's never backed off on that. Uh, there's just so many things, and I think people have now just turned it off. And again, you have a group of people who are just plain sick of COVID, like there is more to life than COVID. Mm -hmm. And then you have a whole other group who have let COVID run their lives. Uh, and I guess the astonishing thing to me was the hatred for Trump and when he and that caused the two most respected journals and medical journals in the country to blatantly lie. And that was when Trump came out and said hydrochloroquine works. And they said, you know, oh, no, no. And it's, uh, even though it's been approved for 65 years, it can cause heart, heart problems and yada, da, 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 which was never proven. And uh, we've, Dr. Uh, Barber has gone into that many, many times, and he said, you know, he's prescribed it for his patients uh, and wouldn't stop. And it's been proven that it works if you get if you catch it early enough and add zinc to it, that it works. And Exactly, exactly. And they started doing these studies, and you, you have to say this was on purpose. When you look at the mechanism of action of the hydroxychloroquine, it helps drive zinc into the cell so the virus can't reproduce. Okay, the, that's what happens when you first get sick. The virus gets in your system, it situates itself on certain cells, and then goes to work, says, okay, I'm gonna make more copies of myself. And then once there's enough copies, it, the regular action of the cell stops and the cell doesn't work properly, it gets inflamed, and that's what happens. Well, you've got to take the hydroxychloroquine before the cell has multiplied, where there's millions of them, or the virus has multiplied, where there's so many and then starts to overwhelm the system because COVID has these three phases. It has that initial phase when 
the virus is coming in and then tries to reproduce. You've got the second phase where your um, immune system starts to attack it and then goes wild. That's the so-called cytokine storm. And then you have the third phase, which is thrombosis, little clots all over your body. And it's those little clots that are giving people the strokes, destroying organs, throwing you into kidney failure. And ultimately, it becomes a blood vessel disease. And the insides of the blood vessels get all inflamed. So knowing that process, you have different drugs at different times. And so some of those studies on hydroxychloroquine were done on patients who were already to the thrombosis stage. They were already on death's door. Well, you know, newsflash, when you give drugs to people, when they're on death's door, the likelihood of them working for anything is way less than if you start treating someone early. So it's like the studies were designed to fail. (laughs) And now that President Trump is no longer in office, oh, what ho, bit by bit, more positive information is coming out. And other countries give people hydroxychloroquine packets with zinc and vitamin D in there, and that's their little treatment pack and they have them in their homes, so if they start to get sick, they can take it right away. So I don't know why we aren't doing the same thing here. And given that the heart rhythm problem that suddenly became the world's biggest problem with hydroxychloroquine, there's probably 50 other drugs that cause the same problem, and we never hear about it. You know, I mean, I'm sure many doctors don't even know, but there's lists and lists you can find. And so why did it suddenly become a big deal here? The minimal risk versus someone not getting a bad case of COVID, I'll take that risk any day, and I'm sure most people would. Okay, back to our, our one-payer system. How do you feel that uh, your peers feel? Or I, I know exactly how you feel, and I know the doctors that do shows here feel the same way, that you know it would destroy medicine as we know it. But how do your, what are you seeing in California and with your peers um, across the country? Interestingly, it's probably... I don't know, 60-40 in favor of not moving to single pair. But there's whole groups of doctors that think, well, it'll make care come out equitably. That's the word of the year Hmm. um, for everybody if we have single pair. And there's a certain sort of uh, unicorn attitude to it that, well, everything will be all right, and say, oh, the stories you hear about England aren't true, but they are true. It's like limiting cataract surgery, limiting hip surgery. And I think 
many people say, oh, well, that'll never happen here, that we always get what we want. <laughs> you can go in and get your hip replaced that week. And then my answer is, well, hello, the reason we can do that is because we don't have single payer. What makes you think it would stay the same? And, and there's, there's a disconnect there. And why do all the Canadians come south? Right. Even, well, talk about something being kept quiet. I thought it was fascinating when, oh, this was a few years back, when a big Canadian bigwig came down to America to get his surgery. And it, it was just sort of like, hmm, why is he coming down here? It wasn't anything special. So, um, uh, but if you don't hear about it, you don't connect the dots. Well, we're. this is exactly why I called you and exactly why we do the shows that we do, that we're trying to get, just like our veteran programs, um, the word has to be gotten out. And uh, mainstream media is certainly not talking about it. And, uh, you know, they'll go along with anything that has a D attached to it. And uh, I just... I just think that uh, we have to keep talking, have to keep educating, and letting folks know how disastrous this would be. You know, I, it's sort of like, and I'm sure you get involved with it as well, but uh, the uh, medical, electronic medical records, and uh, as far as I can see, in many cases, they're more disastrous than the old handwritten bill. But, oh, you know. you know, people have had all these disasters from things getting cut and pasted and then it just getting repeated and repeated and repeated. Um, yes. And again, I look at those records as another grooming tool to get people used to putting things into a huge system where it basically seems like it gets lost in the ether. <laughs> yes, ma'am. It, it, you know, it's sort of like you mentioned Feinstein, but you, it, it, it's sort of like uh, I feel about rules of engagement. When our Congress makes rules of engagement and they've never been under fire, they've never been in a war zone, they've never put boots on, and we have congressmen making rules of engagement and we have the same thing happening with in medicine we have money driven people making decisions that have no clue about medicine and what makes it work and what doesn't make it work and what doctors go through and it's it's sort of like <laughs> if I was hired to build a a uh, skyscraper I wouldn't know where to start and uh, we have the same thing and you can look at our medical system that is a skyscraper and they're trying to rebuild it with socialized medicine that we know has proven not to work and uh, so I, how do you educate people to say whoa Nelly I think at, at so, so many times People say, 
stories are what convince people of something that people have to know somebody that something happened to. It's like people know somebody who was denied some treatment from Medicare or it happened to them where they had to wait for something because of these so-called pre-authorizations and imagine that if every single procedure or time you wanted to go to the doctor, it had to get authorized by somebody. And usually that somebody is not a doctor. They're a high school graduate that's been given a, a list and a chart of check this box, check that box. And then they say, well, sorry, we're not going to pay for that to be done to you. And Again, since we have choices now, someone goes elsewhere. If they really do want it, they can go to one of these cash practices like the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, and there's several completely cash practices around the country where the prices are one quarter of the price of if you had gone through the insurance process. So there's options out there, but once you take those options away, it slaps people in the face. And so the people who have found out, unfortunately, aren't given a voice to say, well, this is what happened to me when my nerve blocks were denied. And and we need a forum, and you certainly help, but a forum for people who don't already know about this where people can tell their stories and other people can see that it could happen to them. And like you said, or happen to one of their family members, and uh, it it strikes home quickly when it's you or a member of your family. And uh, it and if you know of stories, you got the floor, and you've got the you've got the forum for it. All you have to do is give me a call, and we'll go from there with it. Uh, I uh, this this is true about so many things, uh, and this was I mentioned uh, our working with veterans. Uh, our government <laughs> is the greatest government in the world, but and you know, their veterans have many, many, many benefits that they have no clue about, and if the veteran doesn't know, his family certainly his or her family certainly doesn't know. And uh, finally, we're waking up to that, and we're getting more and more service organizations that have a have a, a certain person that works with veterans to explain all of their benefits. And uh, I think one of the best things that happened was getting away from VA hospitals and letting a veteran choose his own doctor. And Absolutely. That has to be one of the best things that was done for the veterans during the Trump administration was that if you couldn't get your care right away or a geographically convenient area, because there certainly aren't VA clinics everywhere in the United States, then you can go to a private doctor and the private doctor get reimbursed for the care. I, to me, it's made sense. And frankly, ever since I rotated through the VA hospital and medical school, I always wondered why we didn't do that because we had 
vets come all the way from Nevada. We had people come from Reno, Las Vegas, and it's like, why are they coming this far? Why can't they see somebody there? And, um, yeah, and this is how we treat our veterans. And and that's another little wake-up call, is that it took us that long to treat our veterans properly. How do you think they're going to treat you? Just a nobody. That's very, very true. And, uh, you know, again, I don't want to get into politics, but uh, Trump signing the Blue Water Bill has made so much difference. Um, And it was... (laughs) Are you familiar with the Blue Water Bill? No, I'm not. Okay, this was... uh, we just did a show on the Coast Guard and their role in Vietnam, but it was not just the Coast Guard, but the Navy as well in Vietnam that they would they would deny a sailor tricare when they when they knew that that person had was suffering in some shape, form, or fashion from Agent Orange, and they were denied because well you weren't in country. Well, we were on the coast when the plane flew over and sprayed us. But well, you weren't in country, so you couldn't. You can't have Agent Orange. And this went on for uh, oh, it's gone on for ever since the end of Vietnam. And until Trump signed the bill that yes, sailors and the Navy, the Coast Guard, you didn't have to be in country. You could be on your boat and get sprayed, or you could get off your boat and walk in country where they had sprayed. And suffer from Agent Orange. And so now the sailors, Navy, Coast Guard, and some Marines that uh, had been denied are getting treated for a variety of illnesses caused by Agent Orange. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, look at how long it took for them to realize that Agent Orange was the cause of multiple complaints that people had because those complaints were very diverse. And so the first thing was, eh, they're all too different, so it, it can't be one thing. And then here it turns out that that's one of the problems with Agent Orange, well, multiple the, different symptoms. The thing that's coming up now is the veterans returning from Iraq and Iran and uh, Afghanistan, where they're getting sick, coming home and getting sick from the burn pits, and at least they've recognized the carcinogens that uh, the burn pits have caused, and uh, hopefully it won't take 20 or 30 or 40 years to pass a bill to cover our vets that are coming home now. Well, I think the Vietnam vets had helped them learn their lesson, and that's a good thing. I, You know, the Vietnam vets were sort of the sacrificial lamb, but this group of vets, I think, will fare much better given the history. So uh, we can only hope that they won't sort of uh, fool around and try to come up with other excuses. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's uh, back to the COVID and and I guess the one thing that I see 
and it's because we interview a multitude of different people and from different walks of life all the time. But you know, it it's a silent killer unto itself without just the name COVID is, and the psychological damage that's being done. Uh, the suicide rates are up, and everything else. So what are you seeing? I mean, our country has changed, and I'm not going to blame it all on COVID. It's the people have changed, too. It, it's just, it ain't home anymore. But that's where I think interstage left COVID, when there's a author, Eric Hoffer, who wrote a book called True Believer, and he has so many great philosophical points in that book. And one that he makes is that what can get a mass movement going is when people are miserable, people who are insecure, that they're willing to say, oh, help me, help me, okay? Mm -hmm. When people are happy, they don't need the government. And look at what's happened with COVID. The idea of making people dependent on the government, that first there's this paycheck protection program, and not saying that after the government told people to shut down that these poor businesses didn't need anything, but you can see the progression. So they get used to the PPP. Then even when all that money hasn't been spent, they pass another bill to give more money. And then you have people during the presidential campaign and now having it come up again, universal basic income. It's sort of like, well, COVID's going to be here forever. So now we have to give everybody a basic income. And so next thing you know, people don't know what it's like not to have the government have some control over their lives. And this is how it's done. You feed it in bit by bit because, of course, the people needed the PPP. But then next step. But this is what you can do with our money. It's the idea you take money from somebody. There's going to be strings attached, plain and simple. Well, uh, Margaret Thatcher had the best saying, I think. Socialism is great until the other person's money runs out. That's right. And this is what I wonder, that who's going to finance all this? They can't keep printing money forever. And we're going to be like how Argentina was when many years ago a tomato cost $18. And, and it's this idea of raising the minimum wage. So, okay, you raise the minimum wage to $15, but that... $2 McDonald's hamburger is suddenly $4 or $5. Everything has to go up to pay for it. So you have a net zero. It's the already even the, the Congressional Budget Office and people are figuring out that raising the minimum wage isn't going to do anything, and it wouldn't be good for the economy. 
that if, if the guy who flips burgers gets 15, then what is the guy who's the manager going to get? He was the guy who used to be getting 15, so he'll get 20. And then you won't have a profit margin, and then the burger place is going to close, and then people have to go farther to get their next hamburger. I mean, these things have consequences. The great Walter Williams, who recently passed, his his big thing was the law of unintended consequences that we have to look farther than just the current election year. We have to look a little bit into the future and say, what will this do? Not, how will this make me look good and grab me some votes? Right. Dr. Singleton, we're going to take a break. I I'll, went ahead and let one slip, but we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Dr. Marilyn Singleton and attorney Dr. Marilyn Singleton, right after a couple of words. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on America's Web Radio in the Business Hour with our very, very special guest, Dr. Marilyn Singleton, who's also an attorney. And uh, I just... I had a hard enough time getting my bachelor's degree, much less uh, had I thought of med school and then becoming a lawyer. And uh, I just I appreciate uh, the fact that uh, you would share your time with us today, Dr. Singleton. Oh, no, it's my pleasure and my honor to be on the show. Well, what is there? Is there one thing you can point to? Uh, as an overall, like we're going to be starting a show very shortly, uh, that right now we're just calling it the happy hour. We haven't really kicked it off, but we've we uh, we're talking to some people that'll come in and just do an hour of jokes and and just trying to get the country to laugh again. And between laughing and religion, um, I don't know what else is going to put us back on our feet. I think that's a fabulous idea. It, it's 
like there's a, a news site that's the good news site that there is so much good news out there. There's so many good people out there, but they don't want us to hear about them. Every now and then on the local news, you'll hear some heartwarming story, but these things happen day in and day out, and people are talking to their neighbors. Just just yesterday, it w- was kind of funny. My husband was in a mood, and we went to turn into our driveway, and some kids were kind of standing in the driveway. He goes, oh, those kids. And, you know, they stepped away and moved, and we pulled in, and when we got out of the car, there was uh, we saw that there was an older man with the group, and he was the coach, and, and these were cross-country runners, and we started chatting with him and asked, had school been back in? He says no, but they were letting the kids uh, practice sports, and the kids were just thrilled because they could see each other and be out in the sun running and all. It made us feel so good to hear about these kids and to see this coach, and, and I think it would be wonderful if people can get that sense again, because people are out there. People, I this is going to sound so hokey, but people need people, and keeping us apart has done so much to our psyches. And I hope with the, with the children that they're able to get it back, able to get a sense of community back, and not be so into themselves. So I think the idea of good news and happiness and bad dad jokes um, is a wonderful idea. Thank you. You know, it's, and I won't be around, but, you know, it'll be an interesting study for for somebody, psychiatrist, psychologist, for somebody, of our kids 20 and 30 years from now. And what, if any, effect? Hopefully, maybe there will be no effect. But on the other side of the coin, there may be. And the longer it goes on, I think there's more chance of there being some kind of effect on our uh, social behavior, our social well-being. Is that a, a fair statement? Oh, my goodness, yes. And you're not alone. I mean, psychologists are now starting to publish papers on this, and it's not pretty. It's particularly for the children. And uh, depending on the age, with some kids, think about it. Like if you're four, you don't remember what it was like before this, that you don't remember life before mass and, and, and people stepping away from people when you're walking down the street. I mean, that's just abnormal behavior, and it's not just, of course, avoiding them so you don't bump into them. It's like moving way into the sidewalk, or some people go way out into the street, risk getting hit by a car, you know, just to avoid another person. That is not normal behavior. And if you're a little kid and that's what you see, I can't imagine what that does for your sense of interpersonal relationships. Hmm. It's going to be it's a scary world today, and it, it could get scarier tomorrow. And uh, I, 
I hope somebody out there is uh, already beginning to plan on it and figure out what needs to be done. It's, it's uh, sort of like I mentioned earlier, if you want to really upset me, mention uh, rewriting history. And I can, I can just imagine COVID at some point not even being mentioned. Uh, we remember the Black Plague, but we're too good to have let something like a little virus shut down the whole country. That's right, but it, they can end up blaming it on anything. Say, well, the whole country was shut down because we had President Trump, mm-hmm. and he's a bad guy. You can blame it on anything, and ten years out, people won't remember. Look at... 9-11, what a shocking event that was, because America, other than the Civil War, where we were fighting each other, hadn't had a foreign war on our soil, and this was kind of our, our first glimpse. Certainly people in Europe knew what it was like to have a war on their soil, and uh, it was shocking, It was, and everybody remembered it already. It's fading oh, from yeah. memory. There's some people who don't know what it is. It's like it's like serial killers. It used to be you could say Ted Bundy, and people that would embody a behavior, and people knew what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, his name is gone. Jeffrey Dahmer's name is gone, and it's sad to think 9/11's name is gone. Unless you're living in New York and can see the memorial, it's, there's whole groups of people who have no idea what it was. And so, yes, you can erase history, and you can rewrite history, sadly. We do a show called Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. You'd be amazed at the folks that have already, and this was our most recent engagement. And uh, we've got veterans coming back from Desert Shield and Desert Storm that are suffering from what we now call PTSD, that used to be shell-shocked or whatever, but, um, and, well, where did he serve? Well, he was in the Army in, in the Gulf War. Oh, what Gulf War? You know, they've already uh-huh. forgotten, and that's why we do a show, Remembering Desert, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, to, you know, the Vietnam veterans were so mistreated coming back from Nam that, you know, we we pump them every week, but we also do the do the thing we and like I I tell the veterans that I interview, please get your child, your grandchild, whoever, and put them on your knee and tell them about what you did because you are now the history book because uh, yeah. history is not going to the his the historians aren't. You know, when they give three pages to World War II in a history book, that's deplorable. Well, they they don't want people to know. It's it's fascinating to me how, uh, when you read history, how people who were enemies then become allies and shift back and forth. And people need to know that, too, that... Once an enemy doesn't mean always an enemy. Look at Japan. Oh, yeah. And, but 
people need to see the evolution of that and the evolution of how attitudes change and and uh, what happens with war, how ugly war is. And that's another reason you don't want it glossed over, that people don't realize the devastation psychologically and sadly physically. And our medical system has made it so men who would have died don't, but they're left with hideous injuries. Mm-hmm. You know, World War II was sort of glamorized, and Hollywood did a, a whitewash job on it, sort of, in many cases, and romanticized it, and, you know, this sailor would fall in love with the wax and all this stuff. Uh, but then came Vietnam that was one of, if not the dirtiest wars ever fought. And the if you really go into Vietnam, and, and the Gulf War now has proven to be very similar, but what humanity can do to humanity, what one man can do to another is just... You know, it, it's just mm-hmm. incredible, and uh, we we had never faced something like something like that. Uh, even Korea wasn't wasn't like Vietnam, and uh, so there are people out there that that have lifelong scars. Like you said, medicine may have put them back together, but medicine can't go into the mind and cure it all the time. So. That's right, and and that's when you need public support, and that's the good thing, at least with these current wars, is the public is not vilifying the folks who have come back. Right, which, which is fantastic, and there are more and more uh, organizations that are reaching out to help, which we support each and every one of them, and many of them we do shows with or for. But, um, you know, it has been a delight having you on, Dr. Singleton, and I thank you so much. And, you know, the offer is there that if you need us for anything, we're always at your disposal. And uh, I hope that uh, you'll come back and uh, join us again. Oh, I would love to. And maybe we can do a happy talk. Now, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. You know, it's sort of, uh, I remember when the polio vaccine came out, and you, they made it almost good to take because it was in a little uh, sugar cube. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go get a shot. And I was just a, a kid. But, you know, it all... It worked for the best. So I hope you have a wonderful day out in California and that uh, Oakland and and uh, San Francisco eventually get their act together. <laughs> Dream on. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe you'll give me the high sign when it's safe to come back out to San Francisco or something. Okay. All righty. Have a good day, Doctor. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Bye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.